You're listening to the Eastside Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This sermon was recently preached at our church. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com. Now, enjoy today's sermon. If you have your Bibles, please open them to Acts chapter 3, Acts chapter 3, if you'd please stand with me if you're able. We're going to read the first five verses, I will of Acts chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple at the hour of prayer, being the ninth hour. And a certain man lame from his mother's womb was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful, to ask alms of them that entered into the temple." who, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him with John, said, Look on us. And he gave heed unto them, expecting to receive something of them. What are you expecting in your life? What are you expecting Tonight, tomorrow, next week, next month, next year. Think about that. Let's pray. Our Father, as we come to Thee this evening, we thank You for Your great love and mercy. Lord, we know that we always get better than we deserve because of your love and your mercy and for saving us. We thank you for the way you work in our lives, the things you bring us through each and every day, little things, big things. We pray that you would open up and quiet our hearts this evening so that all of us, myself included, can hear from you and your word. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious and holy name. Amen. You may be seated. Acts chapter 3, I'm going to make an astounding statement, comes after Acts chapters 1 and 2. Acts 1 and 2 leaves off and starts from the end, roughly, of the gospel according to Luke. Most scholars believe that Luke wrote both Luke and Acts. 
the third gospel is the beginning and the book of Acts is the continuation and the end of description of the time when Jesus spent 40 days with his disciples before he was taken up to heaven and then this is called the Acts of the Apostles normally. It's a record of what some of them did over a roughly 30 to 34 year span. Jesus was taken up after issuing uh, his last commands. He was taken up before them. The people stood there and watched him. It was not something that happened in a twinkling of an eye like the rapture is said to happen. It was a slow process of Jesus lifting up into the air, into the clouds. Some have surmised that that cloud was probably the Shekinah glory that sat over the Ark of the Covenant in the temple or the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Acts chapter 1, at the end, they picked Matthias to replace Judas Iscariot. Matthias became the 12th apostle. I have run into people that said that they were apostles today. Well, I know one thing for certain, they're not one of the 12, because one of the requirements to be one of the 12 was you had to be with the Lord Jesus Christ the whole time he went through his roughly three and a half year public ministry. So Matthias filled out that number, Acts chapter 2, we get to the day of Pentecost. Pentecost means the 50th day or after 50 days. It was a Jewish feast, it was one of the major feasts of the year. That's when the Holy Ghost, the fulfillment of Jesus' orders his commands to the disciples just before he left. He told them to stay in Jerusalem, a specific location, until the promise from the Father came, which was the Holy Ghost, Holy Spirit. They were baptized with the Spirit on that day. They drew a large crowd. That crowd was able to hear them in known languages from around that area of the Mediterranean, people north of the Mediterranean, people south, and also people east of the Mediterranean, ocean, or sea. So that was in Acts chapter 2, and then There was 3,000 people added to them that day. That was added to the local church there in Jerusalem. i probably a little prejudiced, but I think it was probably called First Baptist of Jerusalem. (laughs) Maybe some of you uh, feel the same way. I grew up in Presbyterian, Methodist, and Lutheran churches, and some of those people 
that I remember and people from those churches that I have talked to since then. Uh, in fact, one of the last times I talked to my father-in-law uh, before he passed away in March of this year, he says, yeah, Mark, he says, I think the Baptists came out of the Lutherans. <laughs> well, Martin Luther is, wasn't born until a little over 500 years ago, so there's been Baptists around long before that. But I want to talk about a miracle here that Peter and John perform. Actually, it's not them, it's God. And I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about supernatural biblical miracles to set the stage for this. If you read through the Old and New Testaments, I believe the first true biblical supernatural miracle was the creation of the universe. God spoke. It happened. It came into being. I believe the second one was about 1,600 years after creation, and that was Noah and the flood. God told Noah in advance what was going to happen. He gave him 100 years to build an ark. Uh, if any of you have ever had the opportunity to go to Kentucky and see the ark that Answers in Genesis, Ken Ham have put up there. That is something to behold. If you ever get the chance, I would recommend going to see it. As you walk out and see it in front of you, I was told when I was there, we were there, I don't know, probably four years or so ago, it's the largest man-made wood structure in the world. But God brought those animals two by two, to Noah and his family. They went in the ark. They spent a lot of time in the ark. The ark landed on a high point. Then they waited. They sent some birds out. Some of them came back. The last one didn't. And then they knew it was dry enough for them to exit the ark. Then they walked out on a completely different, totally changed planet from where it was when, it went, when they went into the ark the previous year. So God did an awful lot in that, moved things around. I believe he moved the continents around. He raised up a lot of the mountains. Uh, they probably had some pretty good-sized hills before the flood, but now we have some very high mountains. The third area of supernatural biblical miracles, I believe, was Moses and Joshua. Moses did a lot. I mean, they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground. If you stop and think about that, that would be something. Can you, what would you think if you were told by your leader, we're going to walk across this sea on dry ground and the water standing up on both sides of you? How quick would you be to enter into that? But then again, they had a little bit of help, encouragement. The Egyptian 
cavalry, if you will, the army was behind them, headed their direction, probably pretty rapidly. So you saw that. Then the the manna, the water in the wilderness, uh, there was a lot of things. Joshua didn't have quite a Red Sea to cross, but they crossed the Jordan River in flood time, and it was probably much wider way over its banks, but can you imagine walking down past the priest, looking at that wall of water that's probably churning and bubbling and looks like it can come down on you. It takes a little bit of faith to do something like that. Fourth time of supernatural biblical miracles, uh, Elijah and Elisha. Remember Elijah on Mount Carmel and the priests of Baal and all of that type of stuff. And then when he said that the... uh, they were going to have dry period, uh, dry period for a number of years, drought. There was quite a few miracles done in, through Elijah and Elisha. The fifth one, I believe, is Jesus and his disciples during his public ministry and then the apostles in the book of Acts. There's a number of definite miracles involved here. Were there other miracles involved in the Old Testament? Yes. We just heard about one from Daniel not too long ago. I believe the sixth one is going to be the rapture and the seven-year tribulation. Uh, The Bible teaches in the Old Testament that two people were translated Enoch and Elijah, out of this world without dying. Uh, So then we're going to get probably millions of people being raptured, taken up in the twinkling of an eye. And then you've got the seven-year tribulation and all the stuff that goes on. Some of that is going to be man-made. Some of it, God is going to be working in uh, nature and all kinds of areas Of course, then you've also got the two witnesses during the seven-year tribulation. And then the final one is the seventh, and I believe that's going to be the beginning and going through the uh, thousand-year millennial reign of Christ, also called the kingdom. If you stop and think about it, when Jesus comes back, that's definitely going to be a miracle because people will see him coming in like manner to when he left in his ascension from the Mount of Olives. And if you read Zechariah, I believe it's chapter 14, verse 4, his feet are going to come down onto the Mount of Olives when he physically comes back to planet Earth. And then uh, there's going to be a uh, major battle. And, uh, of course... The Lord Jesus is going to win. And then there's going to be a judgment. And then there is going to be a time period when the whole earth is completely remodeled from all the death and destruction that happened during that seven-year tribulation. 
So that's just kind of an overview of probably the seven biggest uh, times when we're going to see or have had supernatural biblical miracles here on planet Earth. The one in Acts chapter 3 we're going to look at now is a little smaller one because it dealt with basically one person. Verse 1, now Peter and John. Okay, this was probably shortly after Pentecost and the descent of the Holy Ghost and then the filling afterwards and the speaking in known languages. We need to stop and think when we run into people like this. We got Peter and John. During the Lord's ministry, there seemed to be three people kind of in charge, uh, leaders in the apostles. The disciples, it was Peter, James, and John, his brother. Here we see two of them. James, I don't know exactly where he is in this time. He's doing something else. Uh, If you read farther in Acts chapter 12, James is taken by Herod and killed. That's James, John's brother, one of the sons of Zebedee. But Peter had a brother too. His name was Andrew and Andrew, Peter, James, and John were all, were, those four uh, people were all fishermen. They understood some intimately some of the descriptions that the Lord Jesus gave in relation to fishing and fish. Now Peter and John went up together into the temple. This is the temple at Jerusalem at the hour of prayer. This would have been the afternoon prayers, being the ninth hour. Now, when you read this in the New Testament, uh, when it gives you an hour, the third hour, the sixth hour, the ninth hour, it's normally figured from 6 a.m. in the morning, so the ninth hour would be approximately 3 o'clock in the afternoon. So, Peter and John are going up together, uh, possibly to meet with some of the other believers. I mean, they just had 3,000 people saved, added to the 120 that they started with in the church. And they probably went up to pray. Verse 2, when a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried... I've run into a few individuals that have been lame from birth. Uh, One of them was the son of a pastor we knew uh, out in Ogden, Utah. And even when he was in his early 20s, his parents, or maybe a sibling, had to still carry him around. He could not walk at all. So here we have a certain man, lame from his mother's womb, was carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple. So he was probably brought there in the morning, probably taken, carried back home at night. They didn't have nice vehicles like we have today to move people a distance. 
they probably wound up having to physically carry him. But he was laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called Beautiful. Now, at the time that Luke wrote this, it was probably fairly well understood and known which gate this was. There is some disagreement about which gate it was. It's possible it was the Golden Gate. It's possible it was a different gate. I believe it was called the Corinthian Gate. The Golden Gate shined. It was very highly polished. Uh, The Corinthian Gate was made out of brass. Uh, And it also was polished, so it's possible it was one of those two gates. So this man was regularly brought here to ask for alms, for offerings, for gifts, whatever you want to call it, of them that entered into the temple. He was there to receive something for himself uh, so that he could live provide for his clothing and any other needs he had. And people got used to seeing him there during the day, but he went to people that went into the temple. These are probably your more conservative, your more orthodox uh, people that tried as best they could to follow the uh, Mosaic law. There was also probably a lot of people in and around Jerusalem that did not follow it, did not believe in it, did not practice any part of Judaism at that time. So he's there uh, asking alms, offerings from people. Verse 3, who seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, ask an alms. He did what he always did. He asked for help. How about you? Do you have a problem asking for help? Sometimes as Christians, we figure we've got Things fairly under control, things are going along well, and it's always easy for each of us to kind of forget we need to pray and ask for help from God or ask help from other people because of what's going on. But he did this regularly. And Peter, fastening his eyes upon him, with John. So both Peter and John looked intently at this man, this lame man. They'd probably seen him there before. And they said, look on us. They wanted his undivided attention. How is he today with the average cell phone? You want to use it when you're driving? whether it's texting or calling somebody, you know, we tend to take that for granted and and our attention is divided. But here, Peter and John were asking this man who was asking for alms to give 
the two of them, his undivided attention. Verse 5, and he gave heed unto them. He looked at them. He wasn't blind. He was just lame. He looked at them and he said something to them because he was expecting to receive something from them. He was asking for help from another person. This other person wasn't lame. This other person could see, could walk, could talk, could go into the temple, could worship and praise God. He was looking for somebody to give him some help to get him through the day. Verse 6, then Peter said, silver and gold have I none. Have you ever read that and just kept right on going? I have. But I was when I was reading through this last week after pastor asked me to fill the pulpit for this evening, I went, "Okay, Peter and John have this lame man's attention. He was expecting some form of money." so that his needs could be met. And how does Peter say? Silver and gold have I none. Is this one of those but situations in life that we sometimes run into? You ask somebody for something and uh, well, but, or whatever the case may be, he's go, he's, they're letting him down. He probably got disappointed very quickly. But Peter didn't stop there. But such as I have, give I thee. As born again saints, blood-bought saints of the Lord Jesus Christ. If you've done any witnessing, especially, or sometimes just talking to people, how often do they ask for one thing, but that's not really what they need? This is one of those situations. But how many times have each of us done the same type of thing? We have asked for one thing and somebody else sees what's going on and they understand the basics, the background of what we're going through and they give us something that we really need but it's not what we ask for. Then again, how often does God provide for us when we don't know what to ask for? Peter said, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have given, or such as I have, give I thee. Why did Peter say silver and gold have I none? One, he probably knew the man was asking for an alms, an offering, some money. But if you read in Acts chapter 2, it says that uh, some of the people... Well, go back if you want to go back to Acts 2.45. Well, I'll start in 44. 
And all that believed were together and had all things common, and sold their possessions and goods and parted them to all men as every man had need. So it's possible Peter and John didn't have any money because they had sold what they had to meet the needs of the new believers. In the visitors, uh, the Passover and Pentecost are two of the three major feasts in the Jewish calendar every year and many, many, many people came to Jerusalem at that time. And they were travelers, and they didn't have credit cards. They didn't have all the stuff that we take for granted all too often. And so these new believers needed to be discipled, they needed to be trained, they needed to be taught, they needed to be preached to, and so it's possible that Peter and John didn't have any silver or gold with them, but Peter and John gave what they had. Ever heard the expression, you get to meet this person, they give you the shirt off their back? That was a little bit of kind of what Peter and John were doing and saying here. We can't help pay your bills, but we can give you something better, something that will help you, something that will allow you to live a better, fuller, richer, more complete life. So what do they say? In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Peter knew that he couldn't do this on his own. John knew he couldn't do this on his own, but both Peter and John knew exactly who could. And they called on the Lord Jesus Christ, who had just ascended to heaven about, well, 10 days before Pentecost. We don't know how soon after Pentecost this was, but probably not long. They gave the man something that ultimately, or immediately and ultimately changed his whole life. One of the things that I picked up on, it took me a while, a number of years of reading the four Gospels, but one day it all of a sudden hit me. And I think I was reading in the Gospel of John. And when Jesus talked to people, about who they were, their, maybe their background, like the woman at the well, you know, you truly said you have no husband, but you've had X number of husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. He told her exactly what was going on in her life, which helped her to better understand who he was and what he could do. But if you read through the four Gospels, when Jesus met somebody that got saved, you will normally see something happen. Jesus removes one important 
thing in their lives, not everything, but one thing that's probably been holding them back from getting saved. And you see that pretty consistently through the four Gospels. Here, Peter and John had seen that played out many, many, many times. And so here they were doing something for this man. They were adding something to him, strong legs and feet, so that he could live a normal life. He would not have to be sitting at the beautiful gate of the temple in Jerusalem begging alms. He could go out and work. I like that last song we sang. You see how many verses the word work was in there? I mean, stop and think about it. Going back to Genesis, when God put Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, what did he tell them? They were to their there to dress and keep it. They were to work. Of course, work back then would have been a little different than work is today because they didn't have sin and they didn't have all the little inconveniences that we deal with, like bees and hornet stings, all kinds of other things. But work is important in our lives. People that don't work generally don't care about a whole lot of things. So Peter and John gave them what they had. They knew the Lord Jesus Christ. They had been with him. They had been two of the top three disciples for three and a half years. They were just carrying on the ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ at this point. And so they tell this man to rise up and walk. My guess is the next uh, few seconds to the next few minutes may have gotten a little bit tense around that area. Have you ever tried to tell somebody to do that? They disappoint you when they don't because it's not for always for us to do things of that nature, but Peter and John had seen and Jesus did it, and they were just following the Lord Jesus' example. Verse 7, And he took him by the right hand and lifted him up. It takes faith to walk with God. But then you got to put boots to faith. In this case, he lifted him up and immediately, didn't wait for any length of time, his feet and ankle bones received strength. This man had never known what it was to walk. He had to learn how to walk as an adult. He'd never done it before. Parents, you probably, especially if you have a number of kids, you probably remember the first time your oldest child walked. Once you get down to the third or fourth one, it's kind of like, oh, he's walking. Okay, let's go do something else. Here, this man 
was told to rise and walk, he was taken by the hand, lifted up. Immediately it says his feet and ankle bones received strength. Did he stumble around? Did he fall on his face? Did he do all the other things that uh, kids when they're learning to walk do? He didn't have that uh, privilege. And he, leaping up, stood and walked and entered with them into the temple, walking and leaping, I like the third thing, and praising God. He knew what had happened to him. He recognized it. And he knew who did it. He knew who to thank. Have you ever been out in public and you go to a restaurant and you sit there and before you eat, you know, maybe you fold your hands or bow your head and pray quietly or even out loud? Probably could say a lot about evangelistic praying. I have been with people that have done that. It's, they raise their voice. Oh, great God in heaven. Yep. But anyway, he was praising God. He knew who to thank. He didn't thank Peter and John exactly here. He was thanking God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. He was recognized for, because he had been there day after day after day. Probably month after month, year after year. They just, he became kind of the woodwork there. And all of a sudden this guy is walking and leaping and praising God for what God had done for him. Verse 10, and they knew that it was he which sat for alms at the beautiful gate of the temple. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at that which had happened unto him. You know, you get in a habit you, of doing something or seeing something, and if it's not out of the ordinary, okay. Here, they recognize this man and they saw the change that had come into his life, and they heard from his lips what God had done for him. How often do we tell people, it doesn't always have to be a lot. You don't have to quote the Gospel of John to them, but sometimes it's just a little comment that you can make about something that God did for you. And maybe it'll get people's attention, maybe it'll prick their heart, maybe it'll be something that they ponder on for a while, and then they might start asking questions. So they recognized this man, they knew where they always saw him, and they knew what had happened to him. Verse 11 is the lame man which was healed held Peter and John. I think there was probably quite a few hugs about that time. All the people ran together 
unto them in the porch that is called Solomon's, greatly wondering. I mean, this is done in Jerusalem. It's done in the temple. Jesus had been in the temple the beginning of his ministry, in the end of his ministry, and he had been there during his ministry. He had healed people. He had done many things in and around the city of Jerusalem. Now they're seeing it in a little different context because it's not the Lord Jesus doing this. It's Peter and John. And maybe some of them are wondering, why can they do that when I can't? So, we've looked at the first 11 verses of Acts chapter 3. Miracle that was performed directly by two believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, two of his 12 apostles. But the actual work was done by God. It changed that man's life. Let me ask a question. Who was instrumental in seeing you saved. Have you ever thought of thanking him for it? If not, maybe you better look into that. And what's wrong with telling other people about it? What God has done in your life? As I've said before, when our family was on deputation to raise our support, we saw God do some very interesting and some rather unique little situations. Some of whom got us out of trouble. Other ones were just little things. And we have told many people about some of them. God is always there. God is always with us. Do we recognize it? What he is doing in our lives. What he'd like to do in our lives. Let's pray. We want to encourage you to visit our website at eastsidesf.com.